You can learn a lot about someone's God by the way that a person worships. So after listening to our singing and our scripture reading and our sermons and our prayers, what would someone deduce about our God? Or imagine if you had a visitor just listening, sitting in on your prayers in the morning, your, your times of devotion, <clears throat> when you were reading the word and praying. What would they deduce about your God? Is he the sovereign God of the universe? And so it then moves your heart to pray for kings and rulers, that you would pray for God to be working in them to accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. Is he the God of grace and salvation? And so you pray that God would then move in the hearts of people to save, that he would bring the gospel to unreached peoples. Would you be praying for the salvation of all tribes and tongues and nations? Or based on your prayers this morning, if you prayed, would your passive listener conclude that your God is just a personal deity? The God who helps you out with your personal colds, my personal cold, helps you out with getting you a job, helps you with finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe God is like your life coach more than your savior. If God's character, his heart and his strength to save were measured by your prayers what kind of God would he be revealed to be? According to our passage today, God calls for our prayers, his people's prayers, his church's prayers to match his character. And since we have a big God, we as his people should be praying big prayers. That's kind of like the main tagline if you want to write that down. Since we have a big God, we Christians are to pray big prayers. We continue this morning in our series through the book of 1 Timothy. Go ahead and turn there with me now. 1 Timothy is more a letter than a book. And was, this was written by the Apostle Paul to a disciple, a young man and a young pastor named Timothy. Some, and this letter was written sometime in the mid-60s. And Paul writes him, encouraging him to write the ship. Go ahead and look at chapter 3, verse 14. You see basically the main point there. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So there what he's getting at is he's just wanting to establish order in the church. And Paul instructs Timothy in how to nurture the struggling church back to health. As we saw over the last couple weeks there, he encouraged the church to nurse encourages Timothy to nurse the church back to health by keeping the gospel central. See, what had happened is that there were false teachers who had arisen in the ranks and they were teaching false doctrine. They were teaching things uh, that he says were led to vain discussions, like endless discussions. You know, they could sit in the corner and have great philosophical conversations, but yet those things didn't do anything. Those things were based in endless myths. Endless genealogies, probably things in relation to the Old Testament, mind you. So they were holding out the Bible saying, look, this really is important. But really their discussions were uh, vain. They really had lost sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so as they were losing the power of the gospel, as their church was drawing to a dead halt, Paul encourages Timothy, keep the gospel central. But it isn't only the truths of the gospel that Paul wants Timothy to teach and cling to. He wants Timothy and the church to teach and cling to that which corresponds to the truths of the gospel. And so today we look at the first item that Paul wanted Timothy to address to the church. Uh, Keep in mind, too, as we read some of these things, um, you know, Paul very much is encouraging Timothy to write to the church. And he's writing to the church at Ephesus here because Timothy is at Ephesus. So while his letter here has to do with the first century church, it also has to do with us today, just given the nature of Scripture, how it still speaks to us today. It is authoritative for all of life and doctrine, whether they be in the first century, whether they be in a thousand years from now. So this is applicable, and I hope that we see how much it is. So First Timothy chapter 2, and we'll look at chapter, uh, sorry, verses 1 to 7. I'll go ahead and read that now. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and, who, and all who are in high, high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Main point again, because we have a big God, his people are to pray big prayers and we're basically going to break down that sentence and use that sentence as uh, the outline for our sermon so point number one pray big prayers point number one pray big prayers Uh, look there again in verse one it's very clear he calls us to pray first of all then i urge that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgiving be made so here this is paul's first practical issue that he wants to address for the church i want you guys to pray So clearly, Paul here, as he writes to Timothy, basically writing to the church, uh, he's working off an agenda, a list of things that is to be addressed. And just because the thing doesn't come, just because the thing comes first doesn't mean that it is the most important. It just means that uh, here, this is the first on the list of things. And he urges them. This is, it comes with a sense of urgency. I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. Now, most commentators, they they recognize that these words here, they basically all refer to the same thing, that is praying. Um, There are some commentators who suggest maybe slight nuances with each of the different words. Um, And so one commentator, he suggests supplication has notions of making requests for specific things. He says that prayers make specific reference to bringing those things in view before God. He says intercessions, uh, basically it's us going before God, appealing boldly on those, uh, for those requests. And then, of course, thanksgivings, basically being thankful for those things. Whether or not those nuances are present or not, regardless, he encourages the church to pray. 
But note who he is, who he wants them to pray for. He says, I urge you that these prayers be made for all people. Right there, that gets to the bigness of our prayers, right? We are to pray big prayers. Here, this is big just because he says, pray for all people. Now, some of you guys might be a little discouraged. You might have woken up this morning and maybe you didn't pray at all. And now, all of a sudden, God is telling you to pray for all the people of the world. Is that what he means? Every single person in the world. I don't think that's his main point here. Paul is thinking every kind of person. So when he urges the church or our church, as the word speaks to us today, he says, I want you to pray for all kinds of people. And then he lists a specific subset of that, namely kings and all who are in high positions. So here he's talking about a specific kind or a specific type of people uh, that they are to pray for. As he says, look, pray for all people. Now, most Christians have done some praying. After all, you know, our father calls us to engage with him personally like a good father would. He calls us to talk to him and ask of him. But I'm sure if we took a poll today, most of us would probably acknowledge that we are good about praying for ourselves and sort of like the first concentric circle right in the middle, like a target. We're good at that, at our sphere of influence, ourselves and our homes. But not so good at praying for things and people beyond our circle of influence. So the circles of the concentric circles, maybe not so good at praying on the outer ones. I'm not saying that praying for ourselves is bad in any way. No, Jesus says, I want you guys to pray for your daily bread. So there, I think included in that is physical food. Of course, in that is spiritual food as well. But he says, go on and pray for these things. Paul himself is seen praying in 2 Corinthians 12 that that thorn in his flesh, that thing that God had given him to trust and rely on God's grace. He prays a number of times that God would remove that thing from him. He's praying something personal. That's not bad. But generally speaking, we are masters at praying for ourselves when we pray. And if you think about those concentric circles, right, do how often are we praying that God would move in our church, for example, right? We get ourselves and we get our, our immediate sphere of influence, our family, our home. How about the next one? How about our church? I mean, how often are the, the issues of the church on your mind, not only on Sunday, but throughout the week? How often do you pray that God would move in our cities and all the cities represented here that we all represent? How often do we pray that God would move in our nation? And how often do we pray that God would move in our world and have those things on our hearts as we pray for all kinds of people? So in my experience, again, I think Christians are good experienced at praying that 10,000 foot level prayer. And not so good. We're kind of like novices at praying that 50,000 foot prayer. But that's exactly the kind of prayer that Paul tells Timothy to encourage the church to pray for. It's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't say, I want you to pray for individual specific requests. Even though that is good, he wants to pray for kings and rulers over authority or in authority over them. Kings and all who are in high positions. This is pretty remarkable. Pray big prayers. Pray for all. It's remarkable also because here he wants what he wants the thing, the thing that's on their hearts. He wants that thing to be world movements. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Pray for kings. I mean, these kings were very much distant from the average Ephesian person, right? 
But yet he calls them to pray for the, the, this emperor that was over so many people and ruled with so much power. Pray for them, he says. I mean, we know this too, even though our president is a little bit closer to us than an emperor would be to the average Ephesian person. Some of us here, you know, we used to attend church with folks who worked in the White House. I did, Jeremy and Jesse did. People, people who saw the, white, uh, the president every single day. We go to church with a congressman. Go to church with people who are writing laws that our country has enacted. Um, went to church with generals in various branches of the military. These are people that we would sit next to and sing with and pray with. But And the temptation there is to say, naturally, it's for those folks on Capitol Hill to pray for those people because that's their spheres of influence. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul here encourages every Christian in every church, no matter how distant they may be from the rulers in authority, to be praying for them. Not because they are in our spheres of influence, but because they are in God's sphere of influence. It is God who raises up leaders and God who brings them down each at his appointed time. And because he has he has his hand in the nations, so it is that we are to pray that God's will be done where God moves. It's an invitation where God moves, so God calls us to pray. And right there, you just fling the prayers open, big prayers, because God is moving everywhere in all countries at the same time. And he says, pray for these kings and the people who are in authority. This is big. This is big world movements here. A wonderful example that I use often comes from Daniel Daniel chapter 9. Go ahead and turn there. It's after the book of Ezekiel. And here, what is so remarkable about this passage is that Daniel the prophet, as they are in exile under the Babylonians, you know, Israel is basically destroyed they're taken captive and they're sort of indoctrinated daniel is in exile and he has the the scripture of jeremiah he has the prophecy that we have in jeremiah and he's reading it and he knows that god is going to judge israel actually this thing is god judging israel that's why they're in exile and it says there in chapter 9 verse 1 in the first year of darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So there's just talking about history. This is historical here. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books, that is the scriptures, the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what he's doing there, he has Jeremiah in hand. He recognizes that the prophecy of Jeremiah says that Israel will be under them for 70 years. And he takes that. And so what he does then, look there in verse 3 in chapter 9. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, basically in repentance. And he goes on and he prays that though God has said that 70 years would pass as they are underneath them specifically, he prays that the Lord would move and bring his will about. 
He prays that the Lord will forgive them. And Daniel, on behalf of all the Israelites, prays in repentance, calling that God would move, that he would fulfill everything that he has already said would come to pass. So for us today, we know that God is moving about. We know that there is no leadership, no authority, according to Romans 13, 1, uh, that gets into authority apart from God's hand. So we know that God is working all over the world and he calls us to pray that his will would be done. Now, we might not know specifically what he is doing, like Daniel did with Jeremiah's prophecy. But yet we do know that God is moving things ultimately to go to the glory of God, the glory of Christ. History has an end point and God is moving all things so that Christ would be exalted. Where God says he will work, that is the whole entire world. So we are invited to pray. So let me ask you, regarding our nation, how often is Ed Royce in your prayers? You guys know who Ed Royce is? I'm not that familiar with Ed Royce. The 39th district, he's our congressman, oversees Hacienda Heights, which is an unincorporated area. How often is Ed Royce in your prayers? Jesse has him actually, his magnet, right there on his refrigerator. And so as it comes up, as issues comes up, she says that she's looking at him and praying for him. Really encouraging, right? And it's a lesson for us on how we should be keeping Ed Royce in our prayers. You know, what are the concerns that he has? Have any of us went and gone to visit him to tell him, I want to pray for you. How can we pray for you as you govern? People probably aren't thinking like that. Let me ask you, how often is Jerry Brown in your prayers, governor of California? You guys know the issues that are on his heart? Maybe how the gospel or how scripture speaks to those issues? How often is Obama on your prayer radar? You guys praying that the Lord would move in Obama's heart too? That he would administer justice rightly? Fairly? Representing the justice of God? My guess is not too much. But... The wonderful thing is God continues to invite us to pray for these particular things. Another reason why um, this call to prayer is so remarkable is because Paul is calling the church to pray for a, a ruler that they don't really like. Probably. So whether or not your opinions for Obama are good or bad or whatever, whether or not you doubt his character, regardless, God calls you to pray for that man. And it's incredible here. Paul is is calling this church to pray for a very brutal king. It's interesting. He doesn't say, you know, I want you guys to pray for the overthrow of the king. He doesn't do that. Actually, in Romans 13, where they're still underneath the Roman rule, very brutal Roman rule, he still calls the Christians to obey and submit to the authorities. It's, it's, It's very much like Jesus, isn't it? Who says, turn the other cheek. Pray for your enemies. This king was not a Christian. The one that they had in mind that they were supposed to pray for. There were no Christian rulers at the time. Not even by name. So nowadays there might be Christian rulers by name. And maybe even at, at, the, uh, at the pressure of the public, they might advocate for Christianity or freedom of religion or something like that. Uh, not so right there. Paul is telling telling Timothy and the church to pray for brutal, non-Christian rulers over them. And the ruler then was a man named Nero. A man who certainly did not look favorably upon Christians. Here's an example. When he was a ruler, a fire broke out in Rome. 
and the people suspected him of starting it. Because eventually he had the whole thing torn down just so he could rebuild it. And the fire was huge, so it took 10 days to put it out. And in terms of Rome, it was separated into 14 sections, and 10 of the 14 sections of the city were destroyed. So as the people suspect their own ruler of doing this thing, you know what he does? You know who he chooses to blame it on, the fire? He looks for a scapegoat and he says, the Christians did it. The people whose leader told them to pray for their enemies, to turn the other cheek. People who had a sufferer and a martyr as their leader. Let's blame it on those Christians, this rebellion and this anarchy. And eventually, I want you guys to listen to what he did to Christians. Now this comes from the quill of a man named Tacitus, a first century historian. Tacitus says, to destroy this rumor that Nero had ordered the fire, Nero blamed the Christians and punished them with refined cruelty. Those who confessed that they were Christians, that is, were arrested. And on that basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned. Before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they, so that they might illumine it. So they're not in Rome. But you know, these, the, the facts will spread quickly. Imagine the stories eventually reaching them. And this took place, by the way. We're not entirely sure when Paul wrote the letter, but it's very likely that this was taking place, generally speaking, a little bit before, maybe during this occurrence here. Mid-60s AD. So they received the call to prayer for their emperor, who just kills Christians and lights up the skies with their burning bodies. What is it like to pray for your own captors and killers? How many of you guys might rather go quickly to get your weapons... As opposed to go to your knees, praying for the king. Right? So all of you warrior-like dudes, you're ready, to, you're ready to go and do something. But the do something that Paul, that God wants you to do, is not overthrow, but pray. Pray for your king and those who are in authority. Paul goes on next and states the purpose of praying. So right there you see, pray big prayers. Pray for all people. It's remarkable. What's the purpose of praying or more like what should we be praying for? Verse two, it says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The implication here is that the Christians are to pray for their governments. Pray for that their governments would use their authority well, that they wouldn't abuse it and that peace would actually come through this order amongst the people and the carrying out the exercise of authority and you know in romans 13 we actually have a significant commentary on how paul views authority uh, so there we see a, a sustained treatment of it all so if you're looking for things to pray for your rulers and those who are in authority you could literally in your devotion just read through romans 13 and pray through scripture praying for ed royce praying for uh brown praying for obama so in romans 13 1 you don't have to turn there uh, but you can just listen. We could pray that they would use their authority well and not abuse it. Because we know that there is no authority in place that God has not placed in place. We pray that, that governments would be using their authority well. According to Romans 13, 4. 
and other verses there. Governments are supposed to administer justice to carry out good for the people. That's something that we can pray for. Pray that they would administer justice and the way that they would administer justice would be conformed to the justice of God. Now, we know that not all governments are doing this. This is why we need to pray. And of course, it is implied we could pray that they would be saved. Now, again, you might not want to naturally pray for your leader, no matter who you might be thinking of. That leader's policies, that you might not like the person's leadership style. You might not agree with the leader's character. You might think it's suspect. But regardless, our leaders ought to be able to count on our prayers. No matter how much we might disagree with them, their character, their policies. They ought to be able to count on our prayers. That we would be able to turn up to them and say, I am praying for you. Regardless of my feelings towards you or how much I might disagree with you. And Paul thinks that when these prayers are answered, that this would lead to a peaceful and quiet life. Now, when I think of peaceful and quiet life, I think of sitting on the beach, sipping pina coladas, even though I never had one. And I I don't really care to have one anyways, but that's what I think of. You know, kick back, do what you want with your life. No one's going to move my cheese. I'm just going to do whatever I want to. But please do not think that that's what Paul's goal is for the church is there to pray for their leaders. Peaceful and quiet life here means living a life undisturbed so that ultimately we can accomplish not what we want for ourselves, but what what God wants for us. The aim is very much God word here. They are to pray for their governments, peace, administer justice well, salvation as well, so that they might live a peaceful and quiet life. A life undisturbed so that we might accomplish what God wants for us. Take Paul's life, for example. We know Paul was on a mission. He was a missionary. He went on at least three missionary journeys, according to the book of Acts. Um, Most likely he went on more. There was a time when he was in this city, the city of Ephesus. And people of that city began making up rumors that the Christians, no surprise, just like Nero, he's blaming the Christians, you know, that the Christians were there to sort of overthrow the city and its economy. And basically, the Ephesians, they formed this, this mass mob, right? And they dragged Paul and his friends together, and they're about to persecute him. But an official, a city official steps in, not Christian. And a, a city official steps in and stops the mob. And one of their own, the Ephesians say, they, he says... Look, if you all have an official charge, no problem against this man. Bring it to the courts. The courts are open. We can handle it in a way that is ordered according to our society. And we're going to deal with it. But if we continue rioting, we will be charged by the government. So Paul himself, in that very moment, experiences the benefit of good government, even though it was a non-Christian government. Not so that Paul would kick back. That's not the goal. And do whatever he desires, but so that he would go on doing what God desires of him. Preaching the gospel. Another example from Paul's life when he was arrested and about to suffer. He then petitions that he be brought to Rome as a Roman citizen. That they aren't supposed to actually be whipping him as they were. But he can appeal his case all the way up to the emperor. And by God's grace, because he claims his Roman citizenship... He therefore eventually has safe passage to Rome. And eventually there he continues his ministry, even though he's under house arrest. 
So the peaceful and quiet life is not meant to accomplish our ends, but God's for us. That's why Paul includes here, lead a peaceful and quiet life with godliness and dignity. See that there? They want Paul wants them to pursue godliness. That's the fear of God. And live a, a morally serious life, pursuing holiness there. So to summarize here, Paul encourages them to pray for kings and rulers. And from other scriptures, we know that they are to pray that they would be administering justice and carrying out peace. And that's supposed to lead to a life of godliness and holiness, pursuing God. You know, an area, as we seek to apply this to our lives, an area that we can be praying for in our land is that our rulers would believe in and fight for religious freedom. We see the changing cultural landscape of religious freedom when we look to something like uh, the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship ruling that just took place recently. If you guys don't know InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, they've been around for a very long time ministering on campuses. And it was recently determined that all of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship chapters present on campuses, it was recently ruled that they would be de-recognized from all California state schools. No more. You guys have been here for decades, no more, at least in terms of recognition. The reason why they were derecognized is because they require, their Christian fellowships require their leadership to subscribe to a certain set of beliefs. So the school system says, look, we want you guys uh, to no longer make your leaders hold to a certain set of beliefs. And we want to do this in the name of tolerance. And so in the name of tolerance, you guys can no longer officially be recognized. In the name of tolerance, no longer are you guys supposed to have the standing that you once did. And so they were de-recognized. This has significant impact, right? You can just imagine, if if the state's... uh, chooses to do what they have done to InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, that they're just going to continue doing it to a number of other groups. Now, we shouldn't be surprised if really they are targeting Christianity or anyone who holds certain particular exclusive religious beliefs. Um, But nevertheless, they could actually go and multiply what they're doing to any campus groups. One Christian leader said that soon the people for ethical treatment of animals would have to allow Oscar Mayer to lead their campus chapters. So there is a penalty to holding to certain beliefs now. And people are getting fined for it. This is also going on in the business world. So let's say you are a photographer and a gay couple asks you to photograph their wedding. Even though you might employ homosexuals and find nothing wrong about that, I mean, they need to make a living too, Even though when, let's say, a homosexual comes up to you and says, would you photograph my birthday party? You say, well, sure. You know, there's nothing wrong about photographing a birthday party, whether they be homosexual or heterosexual. But if you refuse to photograph a homosexual wedding because you believe it's unbiblical and therefore to photograph it means you are supporting it and that definition of marriage, you will pay the price. This is currently going on. Businesses are being fined for holding to and ordering their lives around certain beliefs. I just read of, of, I just saw a clip, I mean, you guys might know this too, it took place in 2012, where this family operated a farm business, 
and they employed homosexuals, and they opened up their farm to let people come and even rent their barn for parties and things like that, no problem. If they were homosexuals, they didn't discriminate there. But one couple asked them, if a lesbian couple asked them if they could use the barn to be married. And it's there they said, oh, well, we apologize, but actually we feel like that would be supporting something that we don't believe in. For some reason, that couple was recording the conversation. And news people are saying, surely, maybe their motives were, they had uh, certain motives to begin with, because who goes around recording vendor conversations? <clears throat> but anyways, they were fined $13,000. And the couple was made to take all of their employees through their state's uh, sort of rules and laws about the definition of marriage, even. And so now they've had to stop hosting weddings on their property. One, their lawyer said this is the equivalent of asking a Muslim butcher, butcher to begin to sell meat that is not halal or to sell pork all of a sudden. So we as Christians can be praying that the government, while we submit to the government, we are supposed to do that trusting that the Lord has placed them in authority over us. We can pray that the Lord will be moving to administer justice rightly, religious freedom rightly. And it should move us also to be thankful that the Lord has given us a great degree of religious freedom that we know probably will not last very long. So we are to pray big prayers. Point number two, we see the reason why. Because we have a big God. Pray big prayers because we have a big God. So we've seen that Paul calls us to pray. Now, in the next handful of verses, he tells us why we are to pray. Why are our prayers supposed to be for all people? Why are our prayers supposed to concern big world movements? Verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So here, here's just a bunch of reasons. We're going to look at five of them. Reason number one for why we are to pray big prayers. Number one, because God has a big heart. And he desires that all people be saved. So Paul says plainly that praying for all people is good and pleasing to God. And he delights in it. Why is it? Because God desires all people be saved. Our prayers are to reflect the character of God. So if God has such a big heart that he desires all people to be saved, then that's what we ought to pray. And our prayers too, our hearts in prayer, should be matching our Lord and Savior's heart to save. So we pray for all because he wants all to be saved. So this goes back to what if a passive observer was watching you and listening to you pray? Do your prayers re uh, reflect a big heart like God's heart? You're praying for the salvation of nations, that the unreached people groups would be saved as God sends and launches out hundreds and thousands of missionaries into the harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Or are we praying that, you know, God would move to save Auntie Jane's big toe? Is God a God who cares about broken toes? The sickness of loved ones, helping you find a job, helping you find a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a career. Absolutely. You should be praying for those things. Those things are fine to pray for. But I contend, based on what God reveals in the scriptures, that that is not what he wants to be known for. 
primarily. Is he a God of caring for people's physical ailments? Yes, pray for them. But according to scripture, God wants to be known as a God of salvation. That's why we read a little bit of uh, Jonah. A great merciful God, steadfast in love and compassion, 120,000 souls and much cattle. I give you repentance. And Jonah there, he doesn't want, he's angry. He's despairing, grumpy little child wandering out to the desert, sitting underneath the plant, saying, why, oh God, are you going to forgive all these people, these vicious, brutal people who have killed Christians? And God says, because I have made them. God wants to be known throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, as a God of salvation, rich in mercy and grace and forgiveness. A God who desires all to be saved. That's why number one. Why number two? Why are we to pray big prayers? Well, this big God, he is the only God. He is the only God. He not only wants all to be saved, but those all that he has made, he has made. He is the creator of all of them. He, Paul goes on. There is one God. One God for all of the people. However you define all, he is the one God over the all. I love it how he talks about, I mean, this sentence just reads beautifully there. Um, this one God aspect over all of the people. <clears throat> Look there in verse three. This is good, that is praying. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. There is one God for all of the people that you are to pray for. And there is one mediator between God and all of those people. So you get this idea, right? The one God over all of these people. And this one God has appointed there to be one mediator between this one God and all of these people. You just see, naturally, the exclusive exclusivity of Jesus Christ here. And he concludes that. There is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But for now, this note where he says that there is one God points us very clearly to the fact that there is one God that has created all of the people. This is just simple biblical truth here. That God created all people to be in relationship with him, to be accountable to him. But then they have been, they have rebelled, have sinned against their one and only creator. And they earn for themselves condemnation, as we've seen clearly in chapter one. Paul preaches this gospel, this gospel of salvation here that he encourages people to know. That to be reconciled with this God requires something. What is it? That leads us to number three. So why pray big prayers? Number one, because God has a big heart. He desires all people to be saved. Why number two, this big God is the only God. He's creator of all people. But this big God, this only God, has appointed one mediator for sinners. So I love it how God points everyone to this one Christ. One God, all the people. He's appointed one man to stand between God and man. And he says, the man, Christ Jesus. So there the emphasis is on his manhood, on his humanity. So he calls as we, the church, are to pray for all kinds of people, ultimately for their salvation. He says, pray that they all would have the eye towards the one mediator who reconciles God to sinners. And that's the message of salvation. 
that we all can be forgiven. Though we are sinners, we can be forgiven if we repent and believe in the work of Jesus Christ. This one mediator, God who took on flesh and became man to save all who would repent and believe. Pray for all these people. Maybe they will repent and believe and Jesus will mediate for them all. That's the summary there. Pray for all because God wants all to be saved. For there is one God and one mediator. <clears throat> that is Christ Jesus the man. Why number four? Jesus is the one mediator for all because he is the ransom for all. There that language just speaks about buying back. Jesus gives himself through his shed blood to buy back those who deserve to die. He stands in their place. This is ransom language marketplace language we don't really use that today but you know those of you who've lived a little bit longer you know that you used to ransom let's say a coupon or a ticket or a deal or something like that you give the ticket to get something now when paul says ransom he's referring to christ jesus buying sinners back saving them he does not have in mind here universalism he does not have in mind that everyone will be saved. It does not mean all without exception. You can write that down. It does not mean all without exception. As in, Christ Jesus ransoms everybody whether or not they repent or believe. They can believe in Buddha <clears throat> exclusively. Well, I guess the nature of Buddhism rules that out. Um, or they can believe in Jesus. It makes no difference at all. All without exception, I ransom all. That's not what he's talking about. Um, here he's talking about all without distinction. All without distinction. So there's a difference there. All without exception means regardless of whether or not one repents or not, doesn't matter. All without exception. All without distinction all of a sudden sends us into different classes of people. You could be a Jew and saved. You could be a Gentile and saved. You could be a woman and saved. You could be a man and saved. You could be a doctor. You could be a servant. It doesn't matter. All without distinction there. He saves all who call on him, whether or not you are a sovereign or a serf. Besides that, to say that he's talking about <clears throat> some sort of universalism just simply wouldn't make sense. I mean, the word ransom it's automatically limiting. The very nature of the Greek word means substitute ransom. In other words, Christ stands as a substitute for everyone who repents and believes. He actually bears the wrath so that actually people would be free. <clears throat> so the wrath he bears for those people, those people's sins are actually taken away. It's automatically limiting. It's a substitute. And the nature of a substitute is one for a specific group of people. Some say, if you're tracking, uh, you might say, okay, here, I recognize that he could be talking about all without uh, <clears throat> distinction. But what about verse 4? How do you know it's all without distinction as opposed to all without exception? Where it says, God desires all to be saved. Well, there, the, the answer is you let context determine the interpretation context determines interpretation so for example last week people came over to our house for lunch and let's say you weren't able to make it anthony wasn't able to make it because he was visiting his friends in san diego um supporting them so anthony comes up to me and he says jeremy how was lunch at your house and i said oh man it was banging everybody was there 
Do I really mean everybody was there? Like all of the billions of people here on the earth was in my house? No. Right? We use language like this all the time. There's a range of meaning for all depending on the context. So here, I don't mean that everyone in the world was there, but I do mean a lot of people were there. Uh, So right there, context determines that. He desires all to be saved. That is kinds of people. Um, But what's amazing here is that actually you couldn't read that God desires all, that is every individual to be saved. You could read that. That fits the range of that word all in that instance, not in the latter verse where it says he ransomed all because that just does not work by the word and the logic of I'm not losing you guys. Uh, But here it can work and theologically it works. So does the answer, does God want all to be saved? Yes. That's a hearty yes. All as in every individual. And that goes along with other passages. Ezekiel 18.23. Do I take pleasure, any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God is pleased when sinners do this. He is not pleased when sinners die. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He genuinely desires that all would be saved. So every individual, you could read that in verse 4, but you cannot read it that way in verse 7. Uh, turn over to Romans. Here we'll conclude this, this part of the discussion, this sermon, by looking at Romans, speaking about all without distinction. The reason why I'm camping out on this is because it's important. If we believe that everyone will be saved regardless, in other words, that Jesus has ransomed everybody, then why, is, why are there people in hell? All of a sudden, God is illogical and his ways are confusing. Also, if God ran, if Jesus ransomed all and everyone's going to be saved, then why do we need to go and evangelize other people? Why don't we just leave them? But that's not how we ought to read these things. Regularly, God's uh, the scripture speaks about all without distinction. That he doesn't, he doesn't make a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile, the Hispanic and the Chinese, the Caucasian and the Eurasian. Everybody, all without distinction, have access to Jesus Christ through faith if they believe. And Romans 3 is an excellent passage. Look at 21, 3, 21 to 25. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So he goes on for there is no distinction for the all, no distinction for the all. For all who believe for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in the divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He just got done talking about how the Jews are under sin and how the Gentiles are under sin. 
In Romans 1, he talks about the Gentiles. In Romans 2, he talks about the Jews. And he says all Jew and Gentile have are condemned under sin. But guess what? The good news of the gospel is that salvation has been made plain to everyone, access to everyone, for all, without distinction, Jew or Gentile, if they have faith in Jesus. That's the thing that differentiates. That's the only thing that's required. Faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, that's good news. Regardless of what class you might find yourself in, whether or not you are heir of royalty, which uh, Melly and I, when we were in Dubai, we met someone who was a legitimate heir to the throne. Um, salvation is made possible for them if they repent and believe. And salvation is made possible to the peasant who repents and believes. That's the beautiful thing. All without distinction. It doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman, for we are all one in Christ. Whether you are slave or whether you are free, as Galatians says, salvation for all without distinction if they repent and believe. So for you, this is good news if you know yourself not to be a believer. It doesn't matter what status you find yourself in, how much money you have, what kind of passport you have, what ethnic background you come from, what kind of blood runs through your veins. Salvation is for you if you would repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and hold on to the one who saves. Reason number five, it's interesting, this Jew-Gentile thing is exactly where Paul is going here in 1 Timothy 2. The message is for all. The message is for all. Why pray big prayers? Because this message, this salvation is for all. Verse seven, for I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith, and truth. Now he is a Jew charged to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And so he says, this message is for all salvation for all to this. I was appointed. Jesus Christ is the testimony of salvation. And now I testify to Jesus Christ. It's funny. He says, I am not lying. So there don't think, okay, Paul, are you lying somewhere else? And now you're all of a sudden you need to clarify that you're not lying here. No, what he's doing here is he's underscoring the fact that he, as opposed to the false prophets, the false teachers, was appointed to preach the gospel. Not those false teachers who are sitting in the corner having vain discussions about genealogies and myths, but he has been appointed as the apostle, declaring apostolic truth, authoritative, inerrant truth, that this Jesus actually saves. It's that message that he was entrusted with. It's that that saves. So we too, while we are not like Paul the Apostle, we do not have the same charge to lay the foundation of the church after Jesus Christ. We do have a similar mission to bring that gospel to all of the world. So while we are not apostles, while we will not be called to be apostles, we have a similar mission to bring the word of the gospel to other nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that the Father has commanded us. All that Jesus commands with us. And that teaching, that evangelism, that discipleship is to be coupled with prayer. Paul holds out Christ as a savior to all men, no matter what class or culture. And it is his work on the cross that bolsters our efforts in prayer. That our prayers would match the priorities of God's. 
that we would have big hearts that desires that all people, whether you understand that to be all people, every single individual, or all kinds of people. You can read that both in, in that verse, verse 4. He desires that all of these people would be saved. Is that your heart in prayer? A heart that matches God's big heart that desires all people to be saved. I'm encouraged to pray in, from this passage. And I've been convicted to pray from this passage. This text spoke to me today. speaks to me this week. And it was convicting. I've, wanted, I've been wanting to bring in more prayer in our service. Right now we have one prayer. Well, we have a call of invocation uh, sometimes. So we have the freedom to do that. It's calling us as we gather together as God's people to pray in the beginning of the service after the call to worship. Uh, we also have <clears throat> a prayer of praise or a prayer of confession. We acknowledge that God is worthy of prayer, of uh, praise. We also recognize that we need to confess our sins, which is what Oscar did for us, on behalf of us. And then we also have a closing prayer. But what we don't have is what uh, pastors and churches often call a pastoral prayer. Where the church goes before God, uh, bringing our particular needs before him. But not only that, praying for other churches in the area. That they would herald forth the gospel. That they would be true gospel churches here in Hacienda Heights, in La Mirada, in Roland Heights, in La Puente, wherever you're from. We don't have a pastoral prayer where we could pray for those who are in authority over us. And for the kings of the world. For world movement. For the gospel to be working in the hearts of unreached peoples. A natural place to put that would be in a pastoral prayer. And based on this passage, I think God is calling us to do just that. Every Sunday, to bring our particular needs of our body and the concerns of the world, as God is working amongst the world, to bring those before him. Big heart, where God is working, he calls us to join with him in prayer as it brings about the will of God. That's what Daniel 9 teaches us. God is at work, and he calls people to pray. And somehow in his divine sovereignty and as we are, as we bear responsibility, his will actually is moved forward. So starting next week, I'd love it if we would have a pastoral prayer where we could be praying on for these things right here. And so, you know, as a pastor, I don't want to move, make changes too quickly because that could be unloving and uh, come with, uh, you know, a little bit of a jolt, especially if the church has been doing what they've been doing for decades, which they ha which it has. But starting from next week, I'm gonna, we're going to introduce a pastoral prayer. And I think that would be a good and wonderful thing to do as it soon would change your hearts and begin saying, you'd begin to think, wow, you know what? I actually do need to be praying for Ed Royce, Jerry Brown, President Obama, for the leaders even of ISIS. And we get the wonderful opportunity to do just that. In something like a pastoral prayer. Now we do pray for the needs of our body. On the uh, first Sunday night of every single month. So we gather right here to sing praises to God. And to pray for particular things. Uh, but how awesome would it be to take time in the service to do this together. So you can expect that change uh, to happen next week. So to conclude we are to pray big prayers. Why is it? Because we have a big God. And I pray that this sermon, this call to prayer. As Paul urges us. To bring these supplications, prayers, and intercessions for all kinds of people, especially the kings and all who are in high positions, 
I pray that that would actually change our hearts and that our hearts for prayer would match God's heart for the nations. To conclude, Jonathan Edwards, he was a pastor theologian from the 18th century. He was an incredible theologian, greatest theologian to come from American soil. He wrote much, wrote tons that the church has benefited from um, from the last two and a half centuries. One of his works that had a significant impact on the generation after him was all about big prayers, big prayers for revival. He entitled the work, this is an interesting title that we don't quite understand today. He entitled the work, An Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union with God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival and Religion and the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom on Earth. That's like a book all unto itself, that title. In short, it's just called A Humble Attempt. So if you want to search, you can search Jonathan Edwards, A Humble Attempt. He wrote, When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers of his people. Beautiful, isn't it? So he called in that treaty, he called his people, churches, pastors, to get together a month out, a day out of the month to pray specifically that the spirit would move to bring about revival in the church. It's amazing that this book didn't have influence on his time. You know, the God, God works in sovereign ways. And for some reason, it didn't take off then. But you know what? 30 years after his death, a Baptist pastor in England named John Sutcliffe received a box of books in it was Jonathan Edwards, a humble attempt. And in that leader's group, came people like William Carey and Andrew Fuller who together with others formed the Baptist Missionary Society. So Sutcliffe heralded the call to prayer for God to be moving amongst the nations to bring about revival through the power of spirit which always exalts Jesus Christ and people started coming together. He took up Edwards's call and started heralding the same. People like Carrie, people like Andrew Fuller, they came together and started this missionary society. And from then, the so-called modern missions movement was born. So in some ways, Jonathan Edwards is named, rightfully so, the grandfather of the modern missions movement. When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that there should precede it, the extraordinary prayers of his people. We know we have a big God. And we know that God has called us all to pray big prayers, dealing with world countries, movements, things like that, the conversions of leaders. I pray that God would use this text to bring about his will in our homes, in our churches, in our cities, in our nations. And maybe God lays down the track to revival and tells us to get on it through our prayers. He lays down the track of prayer And says, look, I want you to get on it. And when you get on it, that may precipitate a great working of the will of God that he is already determined to do. So as you go out this week, pray that God would change your heart's desires. That it would match the character and the heart of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do pray that, first of all, that you would cause us to worship and glorify 
the one mediator that stands between men and God. Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we recognize that your word says you had to become a man so that you might be a faithful high priest, a faithful mediator that identifies with our very struggles. So we praise you for your condescension and your humility as you gave up a place of glory to take on flesh in a likeness of sinful flesh and to walk amongst us in order that you might bring our requests and our souls before God and that you would justify us by your grace, your love, and your mercy. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have a big heart and that you desire that sinners would be saved. No matter if we are sovereigns, no matter if we are serfs, we thank you for your grace that it goes to different types of people. You are inclusive in that aspect. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would indeed fill us with your spirit so that we in our lives would exalt Christ, exalt you, and that our very desires in prayer and our hearts in prayer would truly match your desires and your heart, your priority and your characteristics. Give us big hearts, we pray. Father, we do now, in light of this text, pray for the leaders, the rulers, and the kings of our country. We pray, Lord, for President Obama. We pray, Lord, for Ed Royce. And we pray for Jerry Brown. Lord, we pray that you would be moving in their hearts so that you would save them, as many of them would claim to know at least the facts of Christianity. We pray, Lord, that you would cause those facts to take root in their hearts and that you, by your Spirit, would cause them to be born again. Lord, we ask that according to your intention for government, Lord, we pray that they would be just in their rulings. We pray, though, that you would give them great wisdom and great discernment, that they, too, would be humble like Christ is humble. That they would seek out the wisdom of others, knowing according to your word that a wise man has many counselors. Father, we pray that they would truly desire, actually, the things that you desire. The protection of life, religious freedom, as you desire your people to be worshipping. But Lord, at the same time, if religious freedom does not happen, as we know that you, by your sovereign hand, have caused the church to grow in different times, whether under persecution or under freedom. Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in the salvation that we have, knowing that everything is being worked out for the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, we pray that if persecution is to come, that we would be like the disciples in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8 and 9 and 10 and the rest of the book of Acts. Even though there was great persecution, yet they went out around the world heralding your great and mighty works of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that our security would never be found ultimately in a country or in a city or even in a home. But the fact that we have been bought from the dead, that we have been reconciled and forgiven through the blood of your son. Father, we pray that justice would indeed roll on throughout the earth. And though we might not see it take place in our lifetime, we know, Lord Jesus, that you are a God who always is just and always loving. And so one day, justice will be known. Until then, Lord, we pray that you would put on our hearts the salvation of souls and the salvation of kings and rulers. In your name we pray. Amen.